0: Well, welcome to Sojourn, glad to gather with you this morning. My name is Justin, I'm one of the pastors here, and just love singing with you guys this morning on a beautiful day in July. Uh, as Theodore said, if this is your first time here, we're grateful that you're here, that God's brought you to gather with us this morning. We'd love to be able to meet you. We actually have a Connect meeting after the service today to tell you a little bit more about Sojourn. So if you've been coming for a few weeks, or this is your first Sunday, we'd love for you to come out to that right after the service so we can tell you a little bit more about our church, uh, how you can get connected and plugged in and uh, answer any questions that you might have. Uh, I want to draw your attention to two things. First, if you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, uh, a couple of guys will bring a Bible around to you so you can read along with us out of the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, I want you to be able to have God's Word in front of you, and especially today, the text we're going to be looking at is kind of tricky, and looking at the words and on the paper, I think, will be helpful for you this morning as we walk through that. The second thing I just want to remind you of is that we have this little half sheet of paper in your bulletin, for you to take sermon notes on uh, just to help you focus and pay attention and to really take that then throughout the week to look back over it and allow God to continue to allow his word to just penetrate your heart and your life and so that you can engage in community with one another, uh, remembering what God is teaching you through his preached word. So we're grateful to gather together this morning before the Lord and with him and have his word opened up now to preach out of and so let's go to him in prayer and ask that he bless that time. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we come humbly before you. Even as we were singing that you are great. That it's your breath in our lungs that allows us to even praise you. What an amazing reality. That you give us the breath to breathe, to wake up this morning, to come and be here. Lord, that's humbling. Lord, it's humbling to recognize that we have sin in our life. That does separate us from you. That should separate us from you. Because you are holy and righteous and righteous and altogether good. Lord, we are humbled because you sent a Savior for us to be reconciled to you. There was no way for us to make ourselves right with you. You sent your Son to make us right with you, to take on our sin and our shame, to repair the breach that our rebellion had caused. So Lord, we're humbled by that. And so as we come before you this morning, we pray that you would help us in humility to receive what you have for us today. As we jump into this text, we pray that you'd help us, help us to understand a a difficult text from your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you would awaken us, that you would awaken us and bring life to receive your word this morning. We pray that you'd empower us, empower us to be faithful, to follow you in every aspect of our life. So Lord, we lay down our burdens at your feet this morning. Maybe we're struggling with belief. Maybe we're struggling with suffering or trial or sin in our life. Lord, we come humbly before you and we lay those things at your feet and we pray that as we open your word even to a challenging word out of Hebrews that you would draw us ever closer to you and we'd be blown away by your grace that we have in Christ. Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to work in this time for our good and for your glory. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, a funny aspect to the English language are oxymorons. Oxymorons are uh, figures of speech where apparently two contradictory words are placed next to each other that don't seem like they should actually go together. They're kind of opposite meanings of one another. So, a few examples a deafening silence, being clearly confused, organized chaos, an exact estimate, alone together, proud humility. There's lots of other examples I'm sure that we could come up with and think of that we use on a regular basis in our lives and everyday speech that if we really think about those two words, they don't make much sense together. Even throughout literature, we see these used. In act one, scene one of Romeo and Juliet, Romeo says, O brawling love, O loving hate. The funny thing is, even the word oxymoron is in itself an oxymoron. It comes from Greek, and the two words that kind of come together to form that translated are sharp dull, or pointedly foolish. Well, the title and focus of our sermon today is Graciously Hard Words. Graciously Hard Words. And So in some ways, it's kind of an oxymoron, because I think for a lot of us, when we think of gracious word and hard words, they don't seem to be the same thing. They can't be the same thing. That we'd receive grace from a word and difficulty and challenge from a word, doesn't seem like those two things can go together at the same time. Then if you're familiar with what God calls us to as brothers and sisters, we know another thing that we're called to do is to speak truth and love to one another, to speak truth and grace to one another. And oftentimes we think those two things can't go together as well. There's moments where we speak truth and there's moments where we speak grace, but for that to be the same thing is difficult for us to reconcile at times. And so as we come to our text today, we're going to see that what the author says to us is both difficult and hard and encouraging and kind. In these few verses, he gives us a warning and an encouragement What he says may be hard to hear, it may be hard to digest, it's going to cause us to really have to think about the reality of our life before the living God. But at the same time, it's important for us to pay attention to and realize that even though these are difficult words that he gives to us this morning, it's in the context of love. The author of Hebrews, once again, is seeking to pastor us that we might know and walk faithfully with our God. And so my hope today is that God will use this to do just that, to draw us closer to himself, that he'll use his word this morning to wake us up if we need to be woken up, and he would encourage all of us to move forward in faith and following Jesus, no matter what comes our way in this life. So with that, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We were in part of chapter 6 last week. We stopped at verse 3. And so this morning, we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, and read through verse 12. This is what the author has to say to us, what God has to say to us this morning. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This text that we're looking at this morning is really a continuation of what we looked at last week. Last week we said this is the beginning of the third warning in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is seeking to draw his audience's attention and your attention to the fact that we're going to have temptation in life to wander away from Jesus. Pressure's to pull us away from him, but he wants us to hold fast to Christ, believing that Jesus is better. And so last week we talked about the, the necessity for us, if we know Christ, to move from spiritual milk to solid food, to move from milk to maturity, that there'd be movement in our life that as we come to know and follow Christ, that we continue to grow to become more like him. And so today the focus is a little bit more of a robust picture of why that's so critical, why that's so necessary in an eternal sense. So to walk through this text today, I want us to answer the following questions. What do these hard words mean? Why is the author saying this to this group of people and even to us? And what do we do with it? What do these hard words mean? Why is he saying this and what do we do with it? If we're looking at this text to seek to kind of outline this text, we could really break it down into two major chunks. The first chunk, the first section is verses 4 through 6. The second is verses 9 through 12. And then in the middle of that, we have verses 7 and 8. And in verses 7 and 8, the author gives an illustration. An illustration to point back to what he's just been describing in verses 4 through 6. And kind of a bridge to look ahead to what he says in verses 9 through 12. So let's walk through these verses and seek to answer that first question. What do these hard words mean? Now part of the reason these are hard words is because verses 4 through 6 are often debated within the church as to their meaning. And there's a few reasons for that. The first one is just the fact that these, the word order is kind of challenging if even different English translations reorder the words and how they come out in your Bible, in your English translation, whether it's the ESV, what we normally preach from, or the New International Version, there's, there's sometimes a different word order, and it can ha- uh, create difficulty in understanding, and really grasping what the meaning of this text is. But the bigger reason that there's debate over the meaning of these three verses in the book of Hebrews has to do with the intensity of what the author is saying and the implications of what it means in our life. What is he really saying? Because if we understand this in in certain ways, then it's going to have a huge impact in how we view ourselves in relation to who God is. But based on the whole Bible, it doesn't have to be difficult to understand. See, we need to understand that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible because there's a unified message to the scriptures from beginning to end that this all fits together. And God telling us this story of redemption that he's pursuing us to bring us back into right relationship with him. And so when we come across a difficult passage in the scriptures, whether that's on a Sunday morning as we're preaching through a text whether that's just in your life as you're studying the Bible on your own, when we come to a difficult text where we're kind of left scratching our heads, wondering, okay, I'm not exactly sure what this means, the best thing we can do is say, what does the rest of the Bible say about this? What does the rest of the Scriptures say about this? And so we're going to do a bit of that this morning. It's important for us to seek to understand. It's important for us to pay attention to, not just for that original audience who faced those temptations to abandon Jesus, It's important for you and me to pay attention to as well. Because we too are faced with temptations. Temptations to give lip service to Jesus. But to abandon Him, whether overtly or functionally. So let's look at these four verses. Try to break this down to really make sure that we're understanding what the author is saying here. Let me read verses 4-6 through again for us. He says, For it is impossible Now, like I mentioned, the word order can be a little squirrely here. So let me try and paraphrase this for us to help us better understand it. What the author is saying, very bluntly, is it is impossible to restore someone to repentance again who has fallen away. It is impossible to restore someone again to repentance who has fallen away. And to fall away is literally to turn away, to turn in another direction. To fall away is the opposite of repentance. When we think about repentance, when we talk about repentance, it's the idea of turning away from our sin and turning towards Jesus. Of seeing our hearts and our minds and our thoughts renewed, away from sin, towards Christ. So to fall away from that is to do the complete opposite of that. Instead of focusing on Christ, we turn away, back towards our sin. Believing that's better than Jesus so someone who has fallen away is someone who exhibits a sustained, committed rejection of Christ and his church. Of Christ and his kingdom. Now I want to be really careful here. I want you to hear those words. A sustained and committed rejection. Because the reality is, no matter where you're at in your relationship with Jesus, there are going to be moments where you struggle with Sin. First John says, if we say we have no sin within us, then we're liars. So, so we are going to struggle with sin. We're going to struggle at different times in our life, even on a daily, maybe weekly basis, uh, with unbelief. Not sure that we really actually believe the gospel, that we really actually believe God is faithful and good. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about those who have a committed rejection of Christ a committed rejection where they are no longer seeking to follow Jesus. And I would say that's both overtly, verbally saying, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, or functionally. There's a functional commitment away from Christ instead of towards Christ. And I say exhibits this because this is about what can be known or seen or heard from observing or interacting with someone one of the biggest questions for this text is, who is he talking about then? And I think there are a few clues for us in these few verses that help us answer that question. He says these are people who have once been enlightened. They've been enlightened with understanding about the gospel and the things of God. They could tell you with their mouth who Jesus is and what he's done. They've tasted the heavenly gift, the gift of God's power and his presence. They've gathered with God's people and experienced that. They've shared in the Holy Spirit, Spirit through experiencing His power and work, seeing things happen in people's lives. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've experienced solid preaching of God's Word, of being in community group and opening up the Scriptures and hearing people talk about God's Word in a significant way. They've seen manifestations of the Spirit in and around them in their life. Maybe someone who's been healed from sickness or a movement of the Spirit in someone's life. He also says in verse 6 to restore them again. So again is a key word for us to pay attention to here. To be restored again means that at one point in time, they didn't seem to need to be restored. And then lastly, we have the term fall away. If they're falling away, it means they're falling away from something. So all of these things indicate that the kind of person that he is talking about is someone who has professed faith in Christ. Someone who has experienced all of these things and then turned away from and rejected Jesus. Now that leads to another significant question for us this morning as we're seeking to understand what these hard words mean. And it's, can you lose your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? And there's three major ways that people seek to answer that question according to these verses. The first answer that's proposed is, yes, you can lose your salvation. If these are people who have experienced all of these things and professed faith in Christ, it must mean they had salvation and then they're losing it. Because he says that there's no way, it's impossible for them to be restored again to salvation. The problem with this view is that it completely contradicts Scripture. Again, if we look at the whole Bible, the commentary of the rest of the Bible says that's not the case. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John says you can be assured of your eternal life. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That you may know he wants them to have confidence that they have eternal life. Romans chapter 8 verse 30. The Apostle Paul there says, "In those whom he, meaning God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Justified means made right with God, were declared righteous before him. And then he says, In those whom he justified, he also glorified. From Paul's perspective, once you're justified, you will be glorified. God will see that through in your life. And then, maybe one of the most important critical verses to help us recognize that you cannot lose your salvation is John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, This, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And church, that's good news this morning, because it means your salvation is not up to you. And if it's not up to you, then you can't lose it. No one can take that from you. God alone is the one who saves. So let us be clear this morning, if you are truly saved from your sin, you cannot lose your salvation. And so the second proposed answer to this question is, well, if that's, the case, if that's not the case, that they can lose their salvation, then this must just be kind of hypo, hypothetical, uh, hypothetical or hyperbolic language. Like it couldn't actually happen. He, he's using over-the-top kind of language here about true believers, but he isn't saying that this could actually happen to them. It's kind of a, a false threat. It reminds me of maybe when you were growing up and you were on, a, on your way to vacation with your family and you're in the back seat with your siblings and you're fighting like 30 minutes after you got in the car and what happens what's the line you hear from your parents if you don't stop I'm going to stop this car and I'm going to turn it around and we're going to go back home but really were they really going to do that I mean they're on the way to vacation it, it's a false threat it sounds really difficult and hard but it's probably not actually going to happen But the problem with that explanation of this text is it just doesn't make sense given the intensity and the pastoral heart that we have seen all throughout the book of Hebrews. That the author of Hebrews pulls no punches. He's serious what he's talking about here. So that can't be the case either. So that leaves our last option as the best option. The people that the author is talking about in verses four through six are not true believers, they're not true believers. These verses are a picture of a person who is in and around the community of God's people. They're experiencing all of these things. God's Word is being faithfully preached, maybe even moves them at times to change things in their life. There's conviction and repentance in the lives of people around them. They go to community group and they're, they're moved by the confession of people in their group and the prayers that people are praying. And the songs move them emotionally as they gather together with God's church, as they live around this, and the Holy Spirit seems to be moving and working amidst the body of Christ. They could tell you the Gospel They may have even been baptized and take communion on a regular basis. They look like followers of Jesus. They act like followers of Jesus. But they're not actually saved from their sin. They don't actually know Jesus. You might think, well, how can this be? This doesn't seem to be possible that they've experienced all of these things, that they've been in this community in this way, But aren't truly saved. When I was in middle school and high school, I was very involved in theater in middle school and high school. Amidst playing some sports on the side, I spent most of my extracurricular time acting in plays. And so through most of my high school time, I think I was probably in about 15 different plays. And it's something I love doing. I love memorizing lines. I love being involved in that and, and telling a good story and putting on the costumes and learning those lines and being that character and if it needed to be makeup or something to add to to make you fit into that role. I love doing that. And I still, I love the fine arts. I love good storytelling. What makes a good play, what makes a good movie, what makes a good TV show is the ability for the actor to convince you that he or she is actually that person that they're playing. Like, if you ever watched those TV shows where there's a, there's a villain or there's a bad guy on the TV show, and you really actually don't like him? Like, you, you have that thought, like, if I saw him on the street in Fairfax, I would cross to the other side. I don't want to see that guy. He's wicked. Man, that's good acting because you, you really believe that that person is the person they're seeking to portray. As followers of Jesus, we are, we are called to imitation. In verse 12, we'll see that. We're called to imitation, but we need to be careful. Imitation is not a call to pretend. We don't live a fake it till you make it kind of faith. It's not a call to pretend, it's a call to believe. It's an act of faith and following Jesus. To put it more succinctly, it's the difference between playing the part and being the actual person. What the author of Hebrews is pointing out is the difference between professing saving faith and possessing saving faith. The p- p- difference between professing and possessing Because a true faith that is professed must be a true faith that is first possessed. It's held by you, it's gripped by you, it's owned by you, it's it's yours. You actually believe it to be true. You're banking all of your hope and all of your life on it. So, how do we know that who the author is talking about is those who profess faith in Jesus but don't actually possess faith in Jesus? Because it happened with the people of Israel. We've already seen this in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3 and 4. That the people of Israel experienced all these amazing things that God had done. They'd been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they saw God perform all these miraculous things, these movements of the Spirit in His power, in His presence. As the angel of death came into Egypt... They had blood over their doors and it passed over to their houses and the firstborn of Egypt were killed and they were released from slavery and they wandered through the desert. They walked through the desert, led by night by a pillar of fire, by day by a pillar of cloud. They would go. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw all of the army of Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. Their food was provided from them, from heaven, from God. Rocks split open and water came out. Yet, what do we learn in Hebrews 3? They did not enter his eternal rest because of unbelief. They saw all these things of God. They experienced all these things. They were so close to it. Yet they fell away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, it is only those who believe who will enter that rest. Notice in verses 4 through 6, it doesn't say anything about being saved. It doesn't say anything about being justified. It doesn't say anything about being declared righteous. There's no mention of faith or believing in all that they've experienced. And the author of hebrews isn't the only one to address this in 1 john chapter 2 verse 19 john says they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are all are not of us these are people who had been a part of the community had professed faith in christ but then wandered away believing another gospel, a false gospel. And he says that just showed us they were never truly a part of us. In John chapter 6, verse 66, after Jesus has been preaching a sermon to a large crowd of disciples, people who said, I'm following Jesus. He gives a hard word about what's required for life with Him. And it says this in verse 66 of John 6, it says, after this, many of His disciples turned back. And no longer walked with Him. Many of those people who had said, I'm following Jesus, they turned away from Jesus and turned back and no longer followed Him. So very close to the things of Jesus. They look and smell like they're followers of Jesus. But they haven't haven't completely walked with Jesus. They've walked away from Him. And so the conclusion is clear. They never really knew Him. They professed faith but did not possess it. And so the author of Hebrews then states this practical reality: they can't be restored again. It's almost impossible, seemingly impossible from a human human vantage point for them to be restored to repentance again, because it's like they're crucifying Jesus over again. That he has to be re crucified for them to be saved. That they actually stand with those who did crucify him, ridiculing him, shaming him, holding him up to contempt, rejecting him and his kingdom. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is. But from that human perspective, it's seemingly impossible. Because from our perspective, this person has seen and heard, has experienced so much. They've been so close to Jesus, but have turned away. And they aren't just turning away from an option among many. They're turning away from the greatest treasure among all. They're turning from life to death. We know that this is someone who does not actually know Jesus because when the truth of the gospel, who Christ is and what he's done, comes to bear on your life and captivate your heart, it will change your life. It will change your life. It leads to transformation. It leads to a reorientation of your heart. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart that beats for me. I'm going to write my law on your heart and I will be your God and you will be my people. It will change everything about you, your worship and your identity changes everything. And so to help us understand this reality of these hard words, he gives us this illustration in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8 he says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. He's saying the land has drunk the rain that often falls. This is about the proclamation of the gospel. The truth of the gospel going out over the lives of different groups of people. But there's two different results that can come from that. The first is it produces fruit. And if it produces fruit, it's it's spiritual growth. It's becoming more like Christ. Then it's useful and it receives blessing. But if it produces thorns and thistles where there's no fruit, there's no growth. It's worthless and is cursed and will be burned. This reminds me of another often debated text of Scripture, the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter thirteen that Jesus teaches. I'm not going to read that now. I'd encourage you to go read that whole thing because Jesus gives this parable and he gives an explanation of it. But what he basically says is this: is that the seed of the gospel goes out and it falls on four different soils. On a path, it's immediately taken up and goes away. On the second one, on shallow ground where it has no root, it springs up quickly, but then it gets taken away. The third soil, it starts to take root, but then thorns and thistles come up and they, they choke it out. The last one takes root. The roots go down and it produces fruit. And Jesus explains, look, all four of those, the Gospel is being proclaimed, but only one of them does it actually take root. Only one of them is actually producing fruit. The cares of the world choke out one. The tactics of the enemy take away the other. But the reality is, we have to see in that is that at the beginning, they all look to be the same. There seems to be growth happening, but it's only through time and testing that the reality is revealed. Do you have mere words and facts about Jesus, but no roots? See, these are hard words, and one of the reasons these are hard words is because we know people like this. I can think of several people that I went to college with, served in campus ministry in our church and college, that no longer follow Jesus. Leaders. There's a brother that I think of that was serving in the church, that was helping lead in different ways and participating in gospel community, and I I know his story of how he would say he came to know Christ. Christ. But over the years, he slowly began to drift away. And over the years, he loved his sin more than he loved his Jesus. And now if you asked him, he'd say, I don't believe any of it. So there's a real temptation for all of us to walk away from Christ because there's pressures without and pressures within. So the author is writing to this group of people to warn them that among you there might be people that are pretending There might be people that are professing but not possessing genuine saving faith. This is one of my greatest fears for those of us that have grown up in the church. It's one of my fears for our kids who are growing up in the church right now. That they would profess faith in Christ but not possess it. And don't get me wrong, my my hope, my desire for my children is that their testimony that they would share is they testify to God's glorious grace is that there's not a point in their life that they can remember where they did not know and trust in Jesus. And I want that to be their story. I want that to be their reality. But I don't want their trust and their reality, their assurance to be rooted in themselves, but in Christ. Not rooted in religiosity, but in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Not rooted in self-righteousness where they actually believe, well, I'm actually a pretty good person. I don't need Jesus. I don't want them, and I don't want you, because of familiarity with Jesus, to be confused, to believe that you actually know Him if you don't. It is true that once you are saved, you are always saved. We said at the beginning, you cannot lose your salvation if you have it. But the modern church has done a great disservice in assuring people of their salvation too quickly of rooting people in a past event rather than in Christ. Promising you that if you prayed a prayer, if you walk down an aisle, if you threw your stick in the campfire, if you check the box off on the card, then you are saved. But there's many people who have done that and then walked away. And do we, do we believe in the assurance of salvation at sojourn? Absolutely, 100%. But your assurance is based not on a prayer, Not on a past experience, not on an event, not on the knowledge you have in your head, not on you. The assurance of your salvation is always based on and rooted in Jesus. in what he has accomplished. And your faith in that, your faith in him. See, the author is not questioning the perseverance of the saints, he's insisting on it. We must continue to believe. Not just today, but tomorrow and the day after that. There are people in this small, predominantly Jewish Christian church that the author is writing to who have given intellectual assent to the things of Christ, but have not given their whole life to Christ. See, the bold and blunt reality is that you can know a whole lot about God but not know Him. You you can even share about Jesus with others, but not actually know Jesus. Is that you this morning? And I want you to honestly wrestle with that. Not to create fear in your life, but to stop and evaluate, man, do I just know about Jesus or do I actually know Him? See, this is why these are hard words, but they're also gracious and kind words. Because my hope is is that God, by the power of His Spirit this morning in your life, would wake you up, if that's the reality. Would shake off the dust in your life to say, you know what, I've been around this stuff for so long, but I don't know that I've actually placed my hope and my faith in Christ. Maybe you know someone else in your life that falls into that category. My hope for the rest of us is that it would spur us on, spur us on out of complacency towards Christ's likeness And that's what the author does in the rest of these verses, 9-12. through 12. He says, after saying all this, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, But I don't think this is going to happen to you. So if it's not going to happen to them, why is he saying this to them? The reason he's saying this to them and is saying this to us is that because there's a right way to pursue maturity, and it isn't from pretending. from believing and moving forward. These are graciously hard words to us, and he says we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We believe you will keep believing that you'll continue to make your calling and election sure. We believe that you will enter God's eternal rest. Why? Because it's not up to you. God is not unjust. He's not capricious. He's not Uh, uh, unkind. He doesn't change his mind. He sees your work and your love. In other words, he sees the fruit of genuine faith in your life. See, church, we need to remember that we don't earn our salvation by what we do. We're not saved by our works, but our faith produces work in our life. It produces fruit in our life. Ephesians chapter 2 says that. John chapter 15 says that. And he says to them, and it's happening now. I see how you care for one another. That's only because of the power of the Spirit in your life. And so this verse shows us we shouldn't actually doubt our faith and our salvation because of Christ. Because of the conviction of the Spirit. If you're led to be sorrowful over your sin with godly grief. Because you're continuing to say my only hope is in Christ. So what do we do now with these graciously hard words? I love in John 6 again, when many of these disciples walk away from Jesus, they turn away from Him, and they turn back to their old life, away from Him. Jesus turns to the 12 disciples, those that are closest to Him, and He asks them, are you two going to turn away? I don't think that's because He didn't know the answer. I think it's because He wanted them to think about the answer. And I love Peter's honest response. It says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe that's all you have some days. Where else would I go? Jesus alone promises the words of life and gives life. Where where else would I go in this world that promises me that? if that's all you have, that's good, because Clinging to Jesus is all you need. Jesus alone enables you to persevere. He purchased perseverance for you when he persevered, going all the way to the cross, not wavering for one moment. And he gave you that perseverance when he was raised from the dead and you believed on him. And church, what a glorious worship-producing truth. God calls you to finish the race and he enables you to do it. So, what do we do with this? We keep believing. We keep clinging. We keep following him until the end. It's what the author is exhorting his audience and us to in verses 11 through 12. He's saying, Don't be sluggish. Don't be lazy. Don't be indifferent to Jesus and his ways. Shake off the dust of disenchantment. Earnestly seek, earnestly pursue him with all of your life every day. He is worthy. He is worthy he is worth it one of the things we can do with these graciously hard words then is be reminded that we are called to proclaim and believe the gospel with and to one another if we're going to be a community that keeps believing a community that keeps believing in jesus then we need to be regularly proclaiming jesus and the gospel of his kingdom to one another Notice what verse 12 says. He says one of the best ways to persevere, to keep believing, is to imitate those who are imitating and following Jesus. Those who have faith and patience and are pushing to the end of the race. Verse 12 is looking immediately ahead to verse 13 where, The author talks about Abraham. We'll hit that next week. It's looking ahead to chapter 11 when he gives a a litany of stories and people who have persevered in faith, but it can also refer to those that we see around us who are continuing in faith. The church, your brothers and sisters who sit next to you this morning. Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians says this, I must listen to the gospel which teaches me Not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That is to say, that He suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The Gospel enables me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the Gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists And then he says this, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know the gospel well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. I love that. Beat it into their heads continually. You know what? I need it beat into my head continually. Because when I wake up some mornings, I don't believe it. When I seek to interact with other people, I don't believe it. When I strive to parent my kids, I don't believe it at times. When I study and prepare for sermons, I don't believe it. And so I I need to be reminded of it. I need it to trickle down into the, the places and the crevices of my heart. I need you to remind me of it. I need to I need to sing it. I need to say it. I need to read it. I need to listen to it over and over and over again. What about you? Do you need it beat into your head continually? And community is key to your continual belief. We are running this race together. So in community group, proclaim the gospel to one another. If you live with roommates, figure out ways that you can rehearse the gospel together. Husbands, wash your wife in the word of the gospel. Remind her of who she is in Christ. Nourish her soul with that truth. Bring her to the feet of Jesus. Parents, take seriously your call to be the lead faith trainers of your kids. But there would be lots of opportunities, lots of context and places for them to hear the gospel, of course. But most assuredly, they would regularly hear it and see it from you. I mean, if you're sitting here this morning saying, I don't know how to do that. That's what we're here for. That's what this community is here for. Find someone who does and ask them for help. Who are you surrounding yourself with? People who would encourage you to follow Christ or those who will pull you away from Him? Let's be a community that in the context of love proclaims the gospel and calls one another to believe it again and again and again. Because the other implication of this is that you and I, should pursue people who are wandering away or don't believe. Pursue wandering people before they fall completely away. If you see a brother or sister in your life, we can remember Hebrews chapter 3 that we should encourage and exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Bring people to the feet of Jesus to behold His glory and grace again. God is the one who knows what's really true of a person. All we have is what we see. And so, if someone's acting like they don't believe, if someone's acting like they're wandering away, then we should treat them like they don't believe and call them once again to repentance and faith. And if someone says to you they don't believe the gospel anymore, don't try to convince them that they're actually saved already. Don't go back, well, no, remember you were baptized. Remember, I was there when you prayed the prayer. I've seen you before. You're, you're okay. If someone's telling you with their mouth they don't believe in Jesus, take them at their word. And call them again to repentance and faith in Him. This morning, maybe some of you need to come to know Christ genuinely for the first time. Just like the various audience, these audiences the writer is writing to, Maybe you've thought Jesus is a good moral teacher, a good example to follow. Or maybe you've been so close to the things of Jesus, but not to Jesus himself. Maybe you've been around the church for a long time. You know the lingo, you know the right things to say, you know how to put on the costume and the makeup to pretend. You can go through the motions. Maybe you've professed faith, but have never actually possessed faith. Maybe you've never actually trusted in Jesus for salvation from sin and restoration. And if that's you this morning, I just want to invite you, would you come to him today? Not with a resume of anything you have to present to him. Would you come to him empty-handed today? Would you respond in faith today, laying down your sin and your shame today, and let Jesus take it for you? In Jesus, you can be both fully known and fully loved. So come to him now and walk with him forever. Because in Christ, in Christ alone, there's peace and joy and life forevermore. Sojourn, what graciously hard words these are. So let us wake up and move forward in faith in and to the risen King. As we come to the communion table now, We come to a meal to proclaim our faith in Jesus once again. It's a meal that declares that Jesus is our only hope. As we eat the bread, we proclaim that Jesus' body had to be broken for us. It had to be nailed to a cross for our rebellion. As we drink the cup, we proclaim that Jesus' blood had to be shed for us, shed for our sin. And so when we walk forward to receive these elements, when we eat and drink them together, we proclaim our faith in Christ again. Maybe you've been struggling. Maybe you've been wandering. Maybe you've been walking closely with Jesus. But I invite you, no matter where you're at in your relationship with Him, to come to Him today. Be refreshed and renewed and rejoice in the God of your salvation. And may He be lifted high in your life. May He be lifted high in this church. And if you're not a follower of Christ, if you know you haven't actually trusted in Christ this morning, maybe you're convicted of that, you're recognizing that, I just invite you to hang out in your seat. Don't come forward to communion, but instead go to God. Ask Him to save you today. Place your faith fully and completely on Christ. And then let somebody around you know that so we can journey with you and helping you understand what a life with Jesus looks like. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and hear the words of what Christ has done for you, spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for these graciously hard words. And Lord, I just pray simply this morning that You would wake up sleepy Christians here this morning. Lord, I pray this morning that You would save those who have been Christians and followers of Christ in name only, but not actually known you. And Father, I pray that you would rescue those who are far from you today. Lord, you are a redeeming God. Help us to be a church that proclaims that redemption to one another on a regular basis and continues to believe in Jesus. May our assurance and our hope never be in what we know, in the things we do, May our assurance always be rooted in our Jesus, in Christ, our King, that we continue to believe in him. We love you. We praise the name of Christ, and we pray all this in his name. Amen.